0: go through this, I really want to stir your imagination. I want to fire up your imagination and give you a glimpse of what awaits us in heaven. Now we all know that humanity is curious to know what heaven will be like and it is intriguing to see the way the unbelieving world portrays it. On the one hand, they see it existing to gratify earthly lusts. And on the other hand, people think of heaven as a bland, boring place with nothing enjoyable to do. I heard a skeptic once saying, I'd rather be in hell with my friends than in heaven with all the church people. Can you believe that? A famous female pop star once declared, I can't wait for the rip-roaring party in hell. There's some surprises waiting there for her. But such a flippant attitude betrays a tragic lack of regard for the horrors and sufferings of hell. And this in fact reflects the sinful thinking of man. You know, a little sin is surely more enjoyable than perfect righteousness. But how difficult it is for us to imagine a realm wholly devoid of sin and yet filled with endless pleasures. And that is exactly how heaven will be. It will be a realm of unsurpassed joy, of unfading glory, of undiminished bliss, of unlimited delights, and of unending pleasures And we will bask in the glory of God, realizing that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever as we praise and worship Him. You know, talking about people's prideful disregard of the Lord's holiness, of the Lord's majesty, and of the Lord's glory. We see many books that are written by people who claim to have died and gone to heaven. And they come back to tell of all these amazing experiences that they had. And I just want to give you a brief summary of one man that said he went to heaven on a number of occasions that Dr. MacArthur brings out in one of his books. I'm not going to go verbatim, but here's the gist of it. This man was a pastor, and he is in huge demand at conferences, giving details of his so called multiple trips to heaven. He claims that on one of his journeys, Jesus showed him in heaven a warehouse, a warehouse that was full of body parts, fingers, Toes, arms, legs, eyes, and so I can go on. And he says that if you had enough faith, any of these could be yours. I thought about that and I thought well, if I was missing a finger and I had enough faith, I could see the finger come back on my, my hand. Just something silly. But he also says that Jesus told him that these are all unclaimed blessings because of people's lack of faith. He also claims on another journey to heaven that there is a stadium in heaven where celestial inhabitants go to watch what is happening on earth. And it was in that stadium that Jesus commissioned him for an earthly ministry. And he tells of a friendly splash fight that he had with Jesus in the river of life. He splashed me and I splashed him in a friendly spirit. In another journey to heaven he claims that Jesus interrupted him watching an episode of a soap opera took him to heaven for a tour and after being returned to his living room Jesus got got up walked back out through the door and the TV clicked back on and he resumed watching the soap opera that's absurd it's crazy This man's heaven exists to serve earthly purposes. All this implies that heaven is subordinate to earth and is preoccupied with earthly realities and that heaven's highest values are actually earthly goods. And this kind of perspective and disregard for God's sovereignty and God's power is also demonstrated by the number of other people claiming to have gone to heaven. And folks, materialism is probably the greatest motivator of wrong thinking about heaven. Now, when we come to chapter 4 of Revelation, we see that there's a definite break between chapters 3 and chapter 4. And in chapter 4 on, we see that the church is no longer mentioned as being on earth. The scene now shifts to the beginning of a new vision for John. You all know, John, John's the one who wrote Revelation, given to him by the Lord. And as per other prophets foretelling the future, John was given a vision of Christ's glory before he records the church's future history and the judgments which will be poured out on unbelieving Israel and the Gentiles. So here in chapter 4, we enter the throne room of God. And this morning, we just want to go on a visit with John to heaven's headquarters. So verse 1 starts off with, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So after all these things that have taken place, In Revelation 1, 2, and 3, John is now shown what will take place in the future. And his opening exclamation here is Behold, a door standing open. This word, behold, is an important word. This word, behold, is used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. I haven't counted it in the New Testament, but I've got that out of a book. And this word, behold, demands attention. What it is saying is look. What it is saying, observe carefully. See, take note. And suddenly before John's eyes, the scene bursts open. I'd like to describe that word. In this way, at the end of last year, Alvera and I were in the island of Kauai. Kauai is one of the Hawaiian islands, and we were visiting with a pastor friend of ours there. And he took us to show us the canyon that runs through the center of Kauai. We, we went up in his car to the top of this volcanic mountain. We jumped off at the um, car park and went through a pathway which was totally overgrown, and as we came over the rise and down was a, a, a lot of steps going down, we went down the steps and onto this wooden platform, quite a large wooden platform with a safety rail all the way around. And I can remember coming down those stairs onto the platform and I walked up to the rail. And as I looked over the rail, I was breathtaking. My breath was taken away at the awesome nature Of what I was seeing. This platform sticks out of a cliff. And at the edge, when you look down, you look down approximately a kilometer into the earth. And on the left hand side is a beautiful waterfall coming out of a volcano. A volcanic mountain, I should say. And it's falling down into the the valley below and going all the way along. And on the right hand side in the far distance is the ocean. And in front of me was this huge canyon, not quite as big as the Grand Canyon, but grand as as it is. It right in front there, with this this massive space and cliffs on the other side. And as I looked over, it was just an amazing vista. I was absolutely dumbfounded. I was breathless, as I said. When you look at Revelation one seven, here's a use of that word "Behold" in the New Testament. Just one, in verse 7 it says, Behold, He, that is Christ, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. His glory will be before the whole earth. His magnificence will be before the whole earth. His majesty and His incredibleness will be there before the whole earth. And the word used there is, behold, look. See, take note. This is the real thing. In John's second vision, where the apocalypse is unveiled, nothing could begin to compare with the throne of God and with the Lamb of God. And they are the focus here in our uh, Revelation 4. This is the center of God's abode. And what a unique privilege that John had there, coming face to face... With the majesty on high. The second part of verse 1 says, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. This trumpet voice that John heard was a strong, authoritative, clear and definite sound, catching him up in the spirit to record the things that would happen after the church age. This transcendent trip into the spiritual state, out of this world, out of time, and out of the space dimension, was for the specific purpose of revealing and recording the end and the lead-up to the end. From Revelation 4 through Revelation 22. So the Holy Spirit sensitized John to the spiritual reality. And with the church gone, this is what happens as God moves into action. Chapters 4 and chapters 5 of Revelation are the prologue and the stage setters for the coming judgment in chapter 6. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, that's John, and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Here we see the central theme of this chapter, the throne, the throne of God. And it's used 13 times in 11 verses. In fact, Psalm 103.19 tells us that the Lord has established His throne in heaven. So John sees here the universal sovereignty and the universal authority seated on the throne. And again, he uses the word behold. The Almighty was seated on the throne in His temple. How do we know this? Evidence is there in Revelation 7.15. It says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. In Revelation 11.19, The temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple. Revelation 16, 17, and 18 tells us that the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. That's the temple in heaven. What did it look like? Revelation 21, 22 clears that up for us. It tells us, But I saw no, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So the temple in heaven is clearly not a building, but it is the glory and the presence of God Himself and the Lamb with a permanent, immovable throne in its center from which all that is to follow emanates. It all flows from that center. It is a fixed, established place of divine worship and judgment It's the center of everything with the one ruling and reigning over all seated on it. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 22 verse 19. You don't have to turn to these scriptures. I'm going through them quite quickly and I've got them in front of me. 1 Kings chapter 22 verse 19. Here the prophet Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right and on his left. In, verse, in Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. This is the picture John was seeing as he came through that open door in heaven. Isaiah and Ezekiel, who were privileged to have a true vision of heaven, described similar things. We come to Revelation 4, verse 3, and it says, In the beginning... Verse 3 And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and a sardius stone. This is the description that John is giving us of he who sat on the throne. How in earthly terms can you describe the brilliance of the mighty one on the throne? John was struggling here to put it into words. So he described it as best he could. He described him as a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. What is a jasper? A jasper is a crystal clear diamond-like stone which refracts all the colors of the spectrum in unbelieving brilliance. And this showed, this demonstrated the incredible glory of God bouncing off the throne. But not only a jasper, but a sardius. A sardius is a fiery, bright, blood-red ruby. And this depicts God's redemptive nature and the fiery wrath and fury flashing forth brilliantly in righteousness. So John sees the majesty, the awesome brilliance, and the blazing colors coming from the exquisite throne of God. Interestingly, the Jasper stone was on the top of the breastplate. The Sardius stone was on the bottom of the breastplate, of the, of the priest's breastplate. And the significance of this is that the Jasper represented the tribe of Reuben, the firstborn. And the Sardius represented Benjamin, the lastborn. And it seems to signify that even in the execution of God's judgment, which is about to come, he will not consume. All his covenant people, Israel, as salvation awaits them in the time of tribulation. The second part of that verse tells us that there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And we see now the beginning of the description of the environment around the throne. The rainbow is a sign of our covenant keeping God's faithfulness. And he is eternally faithful. And here it is like an emerald, brilliant green. This would be the dominant color of this special rainbow. And it is there showing that although the wrath of God is about to be poured out, his mercy and his grace will never be compromised. And wrath is never executed at the expense of his faithfulness. Now Ezekiel also describes what's around the throne. He describes what he saw in his vision of God. And this is what he said in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around the throne. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, similarly described in Revelation 4:4 4, 4, we come to further what was around the throne. Around the throne there were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Who sits on a throne? Well, normally someone who is ruling. In Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 tells us And John saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. Judgment was committed to them. They were sharing in, helping in the judgment that is about to be meted out. And this suggests that there is a sharing of leadership in heaven as these thrones are alongside God and Christ. Who sits on these 24 thrones? It tells us 24 elders. By the way, 24 is a complete number. So here we see the complete thing here. Elders are leaders in the church. So these are people who are representatives of a crowned, raptured church. Let me explain that a little further. The crowns of gold describe the overcomer's crown. And in fact, from the Greek word Stephanos, it means a wreath. A badge of loyalty and a reward for a victor. In fact, in in Revelation 2.10, it's used where it says here in Revelation 2.10, Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. In in 2 Timothy 4.8, we are told, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown. James 1.12 tells us again, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This crown was always promised to the believer. And there is a day coming when believers are crowned in heaven. And they will sing with these folk, the the 24 elders, the song of redemption. And I I, want to just look at that song for a second. I just want to read it out to you in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. This is the song of redemption sung in heaven. And it says there, they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us a kingdom and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. What a delightful song. Lord, you were the one who was slain for us. You are the one who saved us, and that's why we're here. Song of Redemption. Now you'll notice that these elders were sitting, and when they were sitting, it's a posture of of resting, suggesting that their work is done, their work is complete, it's finished. They're seated on the thrones. They are clothed in white robes, the clothing of the saints. What What does that represent? Holiness and righteousness, which is imputed to the saints. So here we have 24 elders representing the raptured church as they witness all that's going on. Verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which is the sevenfold spirit of God. And, D- and Daniel gives a description of that as well. When he had a vision of the Ancient of Days, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, tells us that, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. And then it talks about the the, the myriads of people praising and worshipping him there. That's Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10. But in Ezekiel chapter 1, I'll go back there. In Ezekiel chapter 1, 26, 27, and 28, we're told that above the firmament, over there, um, over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. And on the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. And I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. And then verse 28, which we've already read, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, was so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory The Lord, so these are the descriptions of the throne and what is flowing from it, and they all support one another, they all back up one another. What are we seeing? What is John seeing? Blazing light reflecting off jewels, he's seeing lots of flashing, sparkling rainbow of brilliance around the throne. He's seeing a whiteness, he's seeing a clarity, he's seeing purity, and he's seeing fiery flames with a stream of fire flowing from the throne. And then added to this is lightnings, thunderings, and voices. What a picture. Beauty and splendor. But let us not forget that here is a preview of the fury of God that is going to tear up the world in judgment. That's still coming. And the seven lamps of fire and the sevenfold Spirit of God are ready to execute God's fiery judgment and make war on the earth. And we come to uh, verse 6. Before the throne, something like a sea of glass, like crystal. So at the base of the throne, there was a sea that looked like crystal glass. This would have have added greatly to the reflections of the splendid light of the glory of God. And on display throughout the whole universe was this incredible scene of God's splendor, of His beauty, of His majesty, of His holiness, of His sovereignty, of His universal rule and glory. But also Let us not forget his wrath also. And the second part of verse 6 tells us, And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And these creatures mentioned here in the midst and around the throne were living beings. And they were in constant motion. And Ezekiel actually describes them very well. Because remember, Ezekiel's having this vision too. Go to Ezekiel chapter 1 verses, and we're going to read quite a few verses from there, describing these creatures around the throne. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 3, we are told, The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Then I looked, this is Ezekiel, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its mist like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from it, within it, came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Down to verse 10. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, and each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. To verse twelve, And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted them to go, and they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, and like the appearance of torches. Fire was going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. I've read that a few times, and I've tried to imagine what that must have looked like. Boy, is that difficult. But you know, if we go back to verse 9, we want to see a bit more about these creatures. So we go back to verse 9 of Ezekiel 1, and just a few excerpts from it. Their wings touched one another. Verse 11. Their wings were stretched upwards. Two wings of each one touched one another. Down to verse 19. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them, and when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because their spirit went and the wheels were lifted up, lifted together with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. When those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Now, I don't know where that confuses us anymore, but wheels. These creatures had wheels. And the spirit of these creatures was in the wheels. Now, when you think of wheels, wheels go forward, wheels go this way, wheels go that way, up, down, Speaking of incredible mobility here, this was the throne room of God. So who were these living creatures? You you may recall similar words in 1 Kings chapter 6, and I'll just read two verses. Verse 23 and 27. Inside the inner sanctuary, Solomon made two cherubim. Then he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. Now the inner sanctuary was the most holy place, from verse 16 of 1 Kings 6. And there is where the ark of the covenant of the Lord was. We see that from verse 19 of chapter 6. And this inner sanctuary on earth was a picture of the throne room of God. Further, in Psalm 81, in 80, verse 1, it says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. So these living creatures that John saw, we can confidently say, are cherubim. They're angelic beings. They are the guardians of God's throne. And these unique beings were the highest-ranked cherubim, and their association with bright flashing wheels all around tell us of their amazing agility or mobility. They were a picture of symmetry, indescribably beautiful, magnificent and glorious. They were around the throne. In Revelation 7:11, we're told a little more about these creatures. I'll just go back to Revelation. Chapter 7, verse 11 tells us, And all the angels stood around the throne. That's all the general angels in heaven. They stood around the throne. But who else was around the throne? The, the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. So here we see that these four living creatures were separated out from the angelic host as they were highly ranked special angels with unique tasks and responsibilities. They were acutely aware, they were acutely alert, and they had an amazing ability to see and perceive things. We see from verse 6 that they, they had eyes. Where are we here? Yeah. They had eyes in front and behind. And that phrase is emphasized and mentioned again in verse 8. They were full of eyes around and within. The emphasis clearly telling us that they were knowledgeable and highly perceptible where nothing escapes their careful scrutiny. But further to that, We come to verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf or an ox. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So these faces represented the responsibilities of these creatures. And when we look at these things that it was given like, the faces appeared like, firstly, the lion symbolizes strength. And power. The calf or the ox symbolizes service. The man symbolizes reason. And the eagle symbolizes speed or swiftness. So they are powerful, service oriented rational angels. They are swift and they are involved in serving God. A typical example is in Revelation fifteen seven, where one of these creatures uh, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And here we see the creature involved in judgment. And this would be their temporary role at this time. Their eternal occupation, however, their eternal privilege and the main service of these creatures is worship. And we see that from verses 8 and 9. And coming to the second part of verse 8, it says, They do not, they being the four creatures, do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So here we find a musical composition or a hymn. And by the way, there are five of these as we progress into chapter 5 of Revelation. There are five of these kind of compositions. And those singing these compositions begin here with four creatures. And in chapter 5, verse 13, it tells us, when they sing this, this last hymn, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying... So it's gone from five, from four, to every creature. Everyone. So it tells of an increase of the singers. An increase of these folk who are now praising God and singing these hymns to Him. What a crescendo of glorious worship. And in this first hymn, we see the words holy, holy, holy. It's repeated three times. And it strongly emphasizes God's character of holiness. God is utterly separate from any form of evil in His nature. Or being, His being is pure. And this means that no error, no wrong, no temptation can ever touch him psalm one 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 nine tells us he has sent redemption to his people, he has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Holiness is the antithesis of sin, the exact opposite and Holiness cannot tolerate sin. And so in the scene, it speaks of judgment. God is repulsed by sin, so He must destroy it. Even Job, in Job 13, 11, tells tells his pals around him, Will not His excellence make you afraid, and the dread of Him fall on you? Here is the Almighty, Holy God, and here we are, sinful men. And 1 Samuel 6.20 tells us, The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy God? He hates sin because of His holiness. He's angry with sinners. Isaiah in chapter 6 and verse 5 was struck by intense fear, having seen his sin and knowing that God hated sin. In Isaiah's case, praise God, his faith brought God's grace, mercy, mercy. And forgiveness. And we go on in the song and it says, Lord God Almighty. The word Almighty there is infinite power. God is infinitely powerful. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it tells us, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And this beautiful little passage in Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, tells us, In Psalm 33, verses 6 through through 9, tells us, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Goodbye, Big Bang Theory. Goodbye, this coming. we're coming from slime ball, or whatever they call it. Here we see God's power spoke the word, and the universe and all that was created, was created. He does... Whatever he pleases. so omnipotence and conquering power are the Lord's. And this is what David says in One Chronicles chapter 29. This is what David says about our God in verses 11 through 13 of 1 Chronicles 29, "Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father." Forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Folks, can we praise his glorious name, knowing that as believers, God sees us covered by the righteousness of Christ? His wrath against our sin was taken by our Savior. Nahum in chapter 1 verse 6 tells us who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger. His fury is poured out like fire. And here we sit as saved by his wonderful sacrifice on the cross. And we can truly praise him. Because we don't have to face the fury of God. We don't have to face the wrath of God. It was all taken by our Lord Jesus on the cross for us. The punishment for our sin has it has been paid. The price is fully paid. His judgment expressed against sin is paid for in the believer's case. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior... You've repented, you've called upon His name. You are freed from the wrath that is coming, the wrath of God. So the scene here speaks of the the Almighty's power in judgment and causes the creatures in heaven now to worship Him. Continuing in that verse 8 of Revelation 4, Who was and is and is to come. Unlike animals who have a beginning and an end, and people who have a beginning and no end, God has no beginning and no end. And He is eternal, as you know. How wonderful for us to look forward to living with God in heaven forever. And on the other hand, the terror for the unbeliever who is destined to eternal hell and eternal suffering. God's eternality is a source of joy to those who believe or of fear and terror to those who don't believe. And God alone has the right to judge or redeem. And the four beings offer Him worship here and praise. We're coming to verses 9 and 10. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cause and to be worshipped is him. All the worship of the universe is to go to God. Exodus fifteen eleven says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And Psalm 86, verse 8 to 10 says, among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So here we see this glorious crescendo of praise directed towards the throne. And you know what's happening here? This praise is building up. It's building up. We see here 24 elders added to the choir falling before the throne in verse 10. But what they do next should stand out for us to emulate. They were so enwrapped in their adoration... That all they had received, which was represented by their crowns, their honor, their rewards, their holiness, their beauty, all that they had received from God, they divested themselves of, having no concern for themselves. They cast those crowns at the feet of the king in voluntary surrender. The right response There is no other way to respond to to God's glory and magnificence. None of this casual type stuff, Jesus splashed me and I splashed him back, coming face to face with the glory of Christ. Boy. Well, the proper response is seen in Ezekiel 1.28, where Ezekiel tells us, when I saw it, I fell on my face. Isaiah's reaction was that, I am undone. Oh, woe is me. The Almighty sees me as I am. And John's response in one seventeen of Revelation tells us he fell as dead before God. We cannot stand before an infinitely holy God who sees everything in us. But here in Revelation 4, we see that there's an air of excitement in heaven building. And this momentum of paradise regained is now ramping up. Come to verse 11. You are worthy our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. In heaven they were celebrating or are celebrating God as the creator of all things. And he is the one who has the right to judge and redeem. God is about to take back his wonderful creation and unroll the title deed. And the angels move into action as we move towards that wonderful day. And in conclusion, I just want to have a very quick look at Romans 8, and I just want to read a couple of verses. This is Paul speaking in Romans 8, verse 18. And Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I don't think there's any one of us in this room today who has not felt the pain of suffering, trials, some kind of tribulation. For the earnest, verse 19, for the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Earnest expectation of creation. For creation was subjected to the futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The whole of creation is earnestly waiting for the deliverance from the bondage of sin, the sin of the world that is ravaging all creation. They're crying out, God, deliver us from this bondage of sin. It goes on in the next verse to say, For we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And that word groans there from the Greek means it's an audible expression of pain from a torturing experience. That's what creation is going through. And not only they, next verse, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our bodies. Is there anybody here who's not waiting for the redemption of his body? To have a perfect body in heaven? No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. Just God's glory all around, bowing before his throne, because Christ gave us, salvation so things now in heaven are now rapidly heading for revelation 11:15 and this is what it says loud voices in heaven were saying the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever that's where we are headed That's where we're headed, folks. For those who know Christ as their Savior, that's where you're headed. But the question is, is that where you are headed? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your precious Word. We thank You, Lord, that Your Word opens our spiritual eyes to see and understand, firstly, who You are. Your majesty, Your magnificence, Your glory, Your unchangeableness, Your omnipotence. And Lord, that You do whatever You want. And we are so grateful to You this day for giving us salvation through Your precious Son. Help us now, Lord, even as we have some kind of image of the throne room of God, of the headquarters of heaven. Help us, Lord, to long for heaven. Help us, Lord, to cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, because we are longing for heaven. Like those in Africa who sing hymns, and most of those hymns are about heaven and heaven's throne. Because that's what they long for most. We thank you for your word, Lord. May it change our lives as we appropriate it and put it into practice again and again and again through this next week. Amen.